0: So tonight we come to 1 Chronicles chapter 11, and we pick it up with King David. And as we see at the beginning of the text, David is in the book of Chronicles summarizing human history and Jewish history. We get to the timeline now, we're about 1000 BC, and Israel's been in the promised land for hundreds of years with the judges. And now Saul had been the first king, God rejected him, he failed in his responsibilities as king and his stewardship, and he's been replaced by David. And that's where we pick it up tonight in chapter 11, verse 1. And we'll read the text and we'll go right into this, this great King David and the kingdom that was entrusted to him. Then all Israel came together to David at Hebron, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, even when Saul was king, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord your God said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel and be ruler over my people Israel. Therefore, all the elders, that is the leaders of Israel, came to David there, the king in Hebron. and, And David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. That would be Samuel the prophet. And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is Jebus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. They were Canaanites, as a footnote. But the inhabitants of Jebus said to David, You shall not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Now David said, Whoever attacks the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. And Joab, the son of Zariah, which also happened to be David's nephew, went up first and became chief. And then David dwelt in the stronghold, and therefore they called it the city of David and he built the city around it from Milo to the surrounding area and Joab repaired the rest of the city so David went on and became great and the Lord of hosts was with him now verse 10 is our bonus text now these were the heads of the mighty men whom David had who strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom with all Israel to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel, Israel. So this is that historical record of David becoming king, the kingdom of Israel being entrusted to him, and the foundation of it. Now, we go forward in the next couple chapters, there's more David, more the administration, eventually we'll get to Solomon and his stuff, but this is such a key point in time in Jewish history, plus really human history, because David is, of course, one of the greatest kings that ever lived. Now, in this passage, we saw there that they came to make him king. Now, previously... As a teenager, he was anointed by Samuel the prophet as the future king of Israel. In fact, before he was, Samuel the prophet had spoken to Saul in his rebellion when Saul was rebellious. He said, the Lord has rejected you and chosen another more worthy than you. Then he went to the house of Jesse there in Bethlehem. And as the sons of Jesse came before him... You know, he thought, oh, this first guy, he's the guy. And the Lord said, no, the Lord, the Lord looks at the heart. Man sees with his eyes, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then eventually David was called in. He was shepherding the sheep at that time in the field. He was brought in, and there Samuel, the great prophet, anointed him as king. Now, after Saul died in the battle at Goboa with his sons, it would be seven and a half years before David would be the king of the unified Israel. So there really was a divided kingdom even then, like we've seen previously in Second Kings with the divided kingdom. And it was during that time that the tribe of Judah, which of course was in the south, they recognized David as their king, and they anointed him as king of Judah. So for seven and a half years, he reigned as king of one tribe, Judah. And so this text tonight takes us forward where they're anointing him, as the king of all unified Israel. And so it's actually his third anointing with oil to be king. One was prophetic. The second was partial. But this is the fullness of things. And it does remind us that, you know, the Lord's will does come about. And he'll bring it to pass. It always comes to pass. Uh, ultimately, those sovereign things that the Lord has. And there's a lot of sovereignty on David's life. Key phrase, though, is that they anointed him king. And then in verse 10, it says, the men that surrounded him with him In his kingdom. So we have a king and a kingdom. It's also the covenant of God in the Old Testament, the people of Covenant, the Jews. And here they are on planet Earth. They're they're an ethnic people group, descendants of Abraham. They're there in the promised land, surrounded by enemies, perpetual enemies all the time, told to be governed by God's word to even be led by his spirit, to obey him and be fruitful and prosperous and good things would happen, to disobey him and do the same thing as the Canaanites, bad things would happen. And as always, God has the final say on those things. And this really was a zenith for the nation of Israel. This was such a great time under the leadership of David as their king. Now, as we go forward for the next couple of chapters, we'll see really the leadership of David. And that's thematically, when we look at this passage, this passage is a great passage about spiritual leadership or we might even say because he's a king of the kingdom kingdom leadership and maybe tonight here at worship generation you're saying well i don't lead anybody and i would say you should the church is called to lead the world the world shouldn't lead us don't let your tv set and your laptop lead you you lead yourself being led by the lord to do the things God has called you to do and as we're led by the lord we'll naturally inspire others to be led by the lord and follow the lord Salt and light is being led by the king and inspiring others to do the same thing. And that's how we're to be. So all of us need to put ourselves in a mindset of the leadership in the human experience because there's 8 billion people on this planet and very few of them are are going to heaven. Because Jesus said, wide and broad is a path that leads to destruction and many go thereby, but narrow is the gate that leads to life and few enter thereby. Our primary purpose in the human experience coming to Christ is to be saved by the gospel, to live the gospel, and to present the gospel. And our ultimate driving force as a church is the Great Commission to win people to the king for all eternity. So we're all called to be leaders. We don't have to manufacture leadership. If we're just being led by the Lord, he will use us to lead others, especially in a generation that wants to hire private mentors everywhere to be life coaches, if we're simply led by the Lord and we have the fruit of the Lord in our life, we will become men and women of influence no matter where we came from. I think of my sister living on the streets for years as a homeless person, alcoholic, and all of her situation. The moment she chose to get right with the Lord and go to rehab and complete it and then live in one halfway house for a year with 20 women in San Diego, graduate to the next house halfway house for another year with five women, she became more of a leader, and she became a leader to those other women. That's how it works. And even now, when I was in Florida with her just a few months ago, or actually six weeks ago, driving back to Melbourne Airport from Vero, she's like, I'm just trying to figure out my con. I'm like, Barbie, you sharing your testimony at AA, NA, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, anywhere, everywhere, any rehab group, you have the high ground. You're an inspiration to everyone. Lord, give my sister a bigger vision of her life at 55 and what God can do. So I use her as an example. We're all called to lead, to be led and to lead. And that's how we're going to look at this text tonight. We're called, all of us, anyone who comes to Christ, the moment you might have been a, a follower of the worst people ever before you come to Christ. But when you come to Christ, you're now being led by the King of Kings, and now we're called to be led by him so we can lead. And that's our context tonight. So we're going to talk about kingdom leadership tonight for each one of us and those things that make us really good leaders for the human experience, for the human race. From this text, our points from this text, obviously there's many things that wouldn't be in this text, but from this text tonight, and I want you to really think with the Holy Spirit guiding us, what that looks like for each one of us to be kingdom leaders for Christ. The first thing we see here tonight is that David was called to be a shepherd. The people came to him and said, the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel. And the first profound thing that we see about being a leader for the Lord in the human experience is to have a shepherd's heart of the Lord. Again, when God chose David, he affirmed to Samuel that David had a heart for the Lord. And as we go forward in a relationship with Christ and we're transformed from glory to glory, God is wanting to put in us his heart for people, for humanity, to have a shepherd's heart. This is the lifelong journey that we have to get past... People that hurt us, to get past irritants, frustrations, agitations in the human experience, and just to continually pray for people, people that come and go, people that come and stay, and all the human experience, the people we're closest to, the people that have wronged us, that we just, they're gone in eternity. We can't even make things right with them, but our heart can still be right toward them in memory. Like, just really the human experience in Jesus' name in general, but specifically to lead anyone who's got a greater place to lead than someone who has a a good heart with the Lord and is right with humanity all around them. Isn't that the kind of person people are drawn to? Why are people always drawn to Jesus? Obviously, he's the son of God and sinless, but his compassion and his empathy. The woman caught in adultery, the blind man, the desperate man for his son, the Roman leaders, they were all drawn to Jesus because he had that shepherd's heart. David is the one that's really introduced to us first in the scriptures, With the shepherd's heart. Now, Abraham was a shepherd, too, because he had flocks. Now, concerning David, we know that in Psalm 23, he said, The Lord is my shepherd. And he had this description he described of his relationship with God, that as he's a sheep, led by the chief shepherd. He kept that with him his entire life. The Lord even used that in Psalm 78 to describe David, how he pulled him from the sheepfold and made him a shepherd. So God literally took a sheep, David, and made him a shepherd for his people. When David sinned and took the census and the judgment came upon the people in the latter part of his life, he said, God, may your curse be upon me and my household, but not upon your people, these sheep, these innocent sheep who had nothing to do with it. That was David's heart as a shepherd. Tuesday, we looked at the John text in John 10, where Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. But another text that's really good for Jesus as a shepherd is in Matthew 9, when it says, he looked upon the multitude and he was moved with compassion because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. So the world doesn't need unregenerated life coaches and unregenerated mentors. What the world needs is sincere men and women who are filled with the Spirit and serving Jesus Christ and have the hearts of shepherdesses And shepherds. That's what your marriage needs. That's what your children need. Your children's children need. That's what your neighbors need. And that's what the world needs, whether they know it or not. And the world is filled with wolves. So, all the more reason to be shepherds under the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. When Jesus said that about looking upon the multitude and being moved with compassion, he had been doing his healing ministry. He was early on in his ministry. He would go on to say that as he was describing people as being sheep without a shepherd and being moved with compassion and empathy, it says, then he said, their work is much, but their laborers are few. Which means he's recruiting us to be leaders in the very context by which he said, he we're told he was moved with compassion and humanity is like sheep without a shepherd. Even when Jesus died on the cross, Isaiah describing it in Isaiah 53 said, all we like sheep have gone astray. But Christ is the Lamb of God who became a sheep to save the sheep from our folly. Great leadership in the human experience. The ultimate leadership in the human experience is men and women who have the mind of Christ and are being transformed to become shepherds. God wants us to have tender hearts, forgiving hearts, toward humanity. To serve, to love And to forgive. And if the day of the Lord finds us on our deathbed or in our final breath with a heart free from any malice toward anyone, were the day that started with a heart for the Lord and serving others. If the Lord looks upon our final day in the mid-afternoon, and even that day reflects who we were that day, because the whole compound effect of your life is to be a disciple daily, and then you just become that person you're meant to be, so you're not having to manufacture anything. You sincerely care about the people you work with, even those who wrong you. You sincerely care about your agitating neighbor, even if they forced you out of the neighborhood because you can't live next door to them. But you're able to forgive and move on for who has time for malice and bitterness. And as we pray for people, as Jesus said, we pray for our enemies and forgive our enemies, we get the mind of the Lord toward them so we can even almost be like Christ. And by the way, it's not something we would sign up for naturally, but if you think about it, what's a better look than Christ on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. So what can be more beautiful on the day of the Lord for us that we can look upon anyone and we might be being persecuted, wronged, even martyred uh, for our faith, but we can look upon our Adversaries and say, Lord, forgive them, they don't, don't know what they do. What, by the way, body of Christ, could be a better entry to eternity than that? Nothing. I'll answer the question for you. Nothing. The one who dies, loving, forgiving, and serving wins in the human experience in Jesus' name. The shepherd's heart always wins. And Jesus, the chief shepherd, laid down his life for the sheep. I'm not sure what God will require of me in the you know the last fourth quarter of my life, or third period of hockey, if you will. Uh, whatever it is, it's the second half. And I don't know how it's going to end, but I, w- I accept responsibility to have it end beautifully by keeping my heart tender toward the Lord and people, and having a shepherd's heart for humanity. And there is the greatness that we all look for in the human experience, and there is greatness that's obtainable for every woman and man in this room and everyone who's born of the Spirit. A shepherd's heart It's a beautiful ending for the human experience. It's worth getting after, apprehending, and demonstrating to the world around us. The second thing we see in this text that the Lord would have for us is, in uh, kingdom leadership, is action to do things that need to be done that may not be pleasant to be done but must be done. This story of taking the city of Jebus is fascinating because this, of course, is Jerusalem. Jerusalem. God recognizes Jerusalem as the capital of the Jewish people. The temple was built in Jerusalem, the son of David built it there, Solomon. It's been built upon itself many times and destroyed many times. I believe there's at least like 15 layers of different societies that lived and existed in Jerusalem since this time that Joab on behalf of David took the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusites. It really is the center of the universe. Jerusalem is the epicenter of the universe because that is where Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That is where Jesus rose from the grave for our hope and justification. That is where Jesus is prophesied to come again, to return, and to split the Mount of Olives and establish the kingdom. All those promises of the reign of Christ on planet Earth, which have to come to pass because they've not come to pass, they're going to happen centered from there. We know in the harmony of the Bible that the whole world comes against Christ in his return and his people there in Megiddo, the valley of Megiddo, Armageddon, that it's Israel. And of all Israel, Jerusalem is, is the center point. So it's fascinating to think that the great general Joab under the great King David, that this text of these few verses is so profound in human history. Because if you think about it, when people think about World War III, where is it going to be? They always say, man, you know it's going to be in Jerusalem. It's going to go down. Like, the Israeli government has the the dome, right? They use the dome thing against the rockets. I mean, it is going to go down. If you don't know the end of the world, I'll tell you how it works. It goes down in Jerusalem. That's how it works. And here's Jerusalem 3,000 years ago. It was God's will that Jerusalem would become the capital of his people. That's proven through time. The city of David, the city of the king, And for 500 years, the Jews had lived in this promised land, and it was God's will to drive out the Canaanites. One way or another, your gods, your idols, your lifestyle, your worldviews, we're a people of covenant, this is our land, it's kind of like your house, right, like... We can't, you know, the, church, the church's job isn't to take over every broadcast situation around the world and take over governments and, and like that. That's not how it works. And whenever the church tries to do that, it's, it's a colossal failure. But what the church does have responsibility for is its stewardship in its home, in the Christian home. This is the standard. And in the church itself, the kingdom of God. Or as Pastor Jeremy Foster used to say, the integrity of this sanctuary, the worship that happens here, the fellowship, the prayers, the teaching. This is our stewardship. My stewardship is not to run the state of California or the state of, or the United States of America or the city of Huntington Beach. I can pray for our leaders and all that. Of course, we're called to pray for our leaders. But your stewardship is you, the person in the mirror. The stewardship is your marriage and what governs it and guides it. What's the standard? What's the core values of your life and your marriage and your children? The stewardship is your home and how you manage your finances and how you manage your time. How you get along with your connection of relatives Even how you raise your animals. Because the Bible tells us that a man who values his animals is a good thing in the eyes of the Lord in the book of Proverbs. You learn a lot by people how they treat animals. And societies by how they treat animals as well. See, our stewardship is the person in the mirror. The person of covenant if we're married. The children entrusted to us. Our influence on our grandkids. And future generations coming from our descendants, if you will. And it's our service in the local church, our accountability in that service. That's our stewardship. And so the church moves forward in action with our stewardship. When we know something is what God's called the church to do, then we need to do it. This morning, the men were here. And I reminded the men that one of the five core values, absolutely, of the, human, of the universe, listen closely. One of the five core values of the universe is the authority of the church of Jesus Christ on planet earth in time, space, and matter. Jesus said, to you I give the keys of this kingdom. And there is no entity or organism or existence of human beings gathered together that even can be compared to the church of Jesus Christ in all of its failures and frailties and blemishes. There is no place that's the pillar and ground of truth except the church. And to no one did Jesus say, I give you the pillars of the kingdom. Not to any ethnic group, not to any country in times past or times future. When Christ comes back in glory, however it plays out, the church will be standing. We've outlasted Rome and every other kingdom that comes and goes, and we'll continue to do so. So when we think about taking action, stay with me because they took action, this context is taking action to do what must be done for the kingdom on behalf of the king. Don't be soft. We need to have fiber and we need to have a backbone and we need to have courage. Because every step forward with God's will, you got to fight for it. You want to be soft? Go home, turn on your TV and waste your life. You can do that. But if you want to be something in the kingdom and something in time, you have to fight for the will of God in your life. And every step forward in the light is a step forward against the darkness being repelled A step backwards. And it's always a battle. Never underestimate what a battle it is to save one soul, to just share the gospel with one person. The great lesson of Vermont was 14 months to learn the value of one soul, Owen, the dishwasher, and everything it cost me, my reputation, my wealth that I had, everything, Jennifer and I both, to lose everything and spend 14 months in a state that had no interest really as a whole in knowing the gospel, but to have one person Owen, the 34-year-old dishwasher, say a prayer to receive Christ. And what we went through in 14 months in a dark land, in a dark place, of spiritual battles for one soul was the most valuable lesson. Like Jesus and the apostles going across the Sea of Galilee, and there's a crazy man out of his mind, but to see him restored in a right mind and telling him to go home and tell your family what great things the Lord has done for you. A storm so fierce to save that crazy man that the fishermen who made a living on that sea said, we're going to die tonight. This is the storm that sinks our boat for one soul. Now more than ever, we have to have fiber and commitment to get after it and do whatever it is the Lord is calling you to do, whether you want to do it or not, because discipleship isn't feeling good. Discipleship is being disciplined, self-disciplined, to do what the king is calling us to do as a disciple of his And there's hard things to do sometimes for the kingdom, but it's worth doing because there's nothing more worth doing than obeying the Lord. In this story, we see some great leadership from David. First of all, (laughs) this is great leadership. He incentivizes and he delegates, right? I mean, this is like he's like, hey, you incentivize people. The kingdom is a quality effort and you have to go after things and you have to be committed and you have to hustle on, you have to have desire, determination, and persistence. And by the way, this is what I was really thinking about with this story with Joab and the leadership from David, because David, he was incentivized. And he said, look, whoever, he learned this from Saul, right? Because Saul said, whoever takes down the giant gives my daughter to be a wife. But Saul wasn't true to his word because he drove David out and David lost his first wife. David said, whoever takes the city, you're the commander. Whoever wins the job gets the job. Find a way, get it done. I've mentioned this before, but in studying people who live for the world and money, I'm always fascinated by what they do for money. And I think how much more should we do it for the kingdom? But Henry Ford, Henry Ford, the grandson, when his engineers told him there is no way to build a V8 engine, he said, there is. And don't come in here till you found a way that's just how things get done and we do we take action David he said this is the capital you don't you don't let when you know the Lord's giving you a yes you say no to the devil's no in other words I'll say it this way we do not accept no when it's God's yes man you got to deal with things in life you got to confront people you got to confront family members. you got to confront things with the will, the trust, and the power of attorney. you got to confront things with your boss, with your coworkers, your siblings, your adult siblings. You have to confront things because if you don't, who's going to? And if you know the Lord's calling you to do it, you have to do it. And whether you want to do it or not, whether it costs you a good night's sleep or not, will reveal how much trust you have in your heart with the Lord. I had a situation managing my dad's finances about five years ago. Actually, about three right when the COVID thing broke out. But uh, my mom had insisted my dad had X amount of wealth with these uh, UBS people back on the East Coast. They handled my mom's money for decades. My mom passed away, as many of you know, right about that time. And I was doing homework on finances because if you show yourself diligent, God will show you stuff, beneficial knowledge, BK. And I had it concerning finances. And I knew the way my dad's money was stored, it was not good. He was gonna lose money. It was a good chunk of money, six digits. And I prayed and prayed about it. And I was like, okay, I don't know as much about money. I talked to Susan Brandt, Steve Williams, other people, Devin Molina, people I respected, have, you know, are successful that way. But I'm like, okay, Lord, I, I'm so intimidated. I can't call mom, you know? you know. You know what it's like when you want to call mom and she's not there anymore? Raise your hand. You know what it's like you want to call mom? Ma, Ma, what do I do? And she's not there. And it's like you and the Lord. Losing your mom's huge. Especially losing My mom. I was like, okay, I'm so intimidated by these money people because they want you to be intimidated. They can do what they want with your money so often, but you, you, listen, man, my dad's money was my stewardship, legally and spiritually. And the Lord put my heart, you need to get that money out of there and put it here. And I'm intimidated to call these people. They've handled the family money for 30 plus years, my mom and my dad. And then the night before, it was a Sunday night the Lord woke me up and had me review some of my notes on my phone going through like things I educated myself on and I connected the dots that his money was about to lose a lot of money and if he'd stepped, kept it there he would have lost 30,000 plus and the Lord said you're not asking for half of it back don't be intimidated it's your stewardship it's your dad's money and your dad's stewardship you call those people tomorrow morning I got your back you tell them you want all that money transferred now and I knew the Lord had spoken to me I fell asleep in peace. I woke up. I was pretty nervous about it because when you're telling people to release $100,000 plus, but I did. It was an eight minute phone call. And by God's grace, I've made a lot more money from that money since then on behalf of my dad and my siblings who shared the estate. Because I sought the Lord, I listened to the Lord, and I did the hard thing he told me to do. I was like, Lord, can't we just leave it there? Can't we just leave it there to be non-confrontational? Sure, it'll work out. We can trust the government and the dollar, right? No, you can't. No, you can't. Okay. Do what you got. I can see my mom going, go. I was Catholic like, mom, Go. You do what you gotta do. <sighs> okay, Ma, we got this. <laughs> Listen, you gotta take action. There's things we gotta do, and WG, you gotta do it. You, ju- you just gotta do it. Jesus, what did Jesus do? He healed on the Sabbath. Do you think every? T- I mean, like, Jesus, like, can you picture the apostles? Maybe Peter and these guys, like, hey, can we just do this on Sunday or Monday? Like, why do we have to do everything on Saturday? Because that's what he was called to do. He had to heal on Saturday to confront the falsehood, the false teaching, and the doctrines of men. He had to do what he had to do. And Jesus healed on Saturday over and over to the point where it says they wanted to kill him. But he kept healing on Saturdays. Because that's what he had to do. He set his face like Flint to Jerusalem, like we talked about last week, Luke 9. Because that's what he had to do for this purpose. He came to die on the cross for our sins. And he had to go. And even there in the garden, Lord, if Father, if there's any other way, no, there is no other way. They're coming right now. And Judas is leading them. Because that's what he had to do. This story of Joab and David, the, the, the incentivizing Joab, he became the chief, delegating to Joab, he found a way. And that's what you do, you find a way. Proverbs says a wise man scales the city wall and takes the city. You find a way. If Henry Ford can tell those guys, no, don't come back in here until you have a V8, you know, like how much more for the kingdom? Well, oh, look, the, the nation's closed. We can't get the gospel there. People like George Mueller, Hudson Taylor, William Carey, uh, Amy Carmichael, these people changed the world because they found a way when people said, no, you can't come here. No, you can't come here. Time and time again, those great missionaries went into colonial areas in Asia and Africa. And like, no, no, no. And they said, yes, yes, yes. When the Sanhedrin said to the apostles, you can't preach his name anymore. Don't you do that. And you throw you in jail for a night just so you think about it. And then the next day, the Lord released them. And where were they? They were in the court preaching Jesus Christ. Because the church is the final authority on planet Earth. And we're the pillar and ground of truth. And as long as we know we're in God's will, we know we are unstoppable. Joab took action. He got it going. Jesus leads the example of the book of Acts. In one generation, that same group of people that were told in, in Acts 4 and 5, don't you mention the name of Jesus. In one generation, through the persecution, the rejection, the sufferings, and the tribulations, The entire Roman world, including Caesar himself, within one generation had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ without social media in one generation. WG is an exhortation. When God says yes, you cannot accept the nose of men and humanity. The higher law is always eternity and the gospel and the Great Commission and there comes a point where you want to be respectful. We always want to be respectful because we have a heart for people like a shepherd, but there comes a point when you just got to, the Jebusites can figure out what they want to do, but we're taking the city. We're doing this because this is what God's called us to do. In your home, in the church, in the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Because on this planet 200 years from now, if nothing changes, I mean like the Lord hasn't come back. The church that exist in this soil, this land, because remember, the missions were like 250 years ago, Father Juniper Sierra and those type of people. Look, the Azusa Street Revival, early 1900s, 120 years ago in Los Angeles. If we're all gone and there's a future generation of generation and generation and Mark Coke's great-great-grandkids are doing ministry in the year 2150, the church will still be here and will still be entrusted with preaching the gospel and fulfilling the Great Commission. That is the center of the universe, Jesus Christ and Him exalted. Get a vision. Don't overthink it. You know, that they say in business that the difference between the 20% that make 80% of the revenue in any industry, the common denominator, first of all, is they have goals and they take action. They have goals and they do something. So if you just have a goal and a vision, write it down and do it, you're in the top 20% right away in the human experience by all statistical records. And if you want to be in the top 5% of that 20%, show up early. And if you want to be in the top 3% and really advance in life and with the King Jesus, with King Jesus for all he has for us, get it done quickly. The highest paid people on planet Earth get paid because they show up early, do the job, and they get it done quickly. They get it done with urgency. And who should have more urgency than you and me on the clock for eternity with one life that's a vapor? Vision goes, get it, in Jesus' name. Because they did it all for all this wealth they left behind. It's all going compound wealth for them. But they're long gone. Pastor Chuck, Billy Graham, you and me, Greg Laurie, our goes compound for generations and generations till this age is over. Everything you do in Jesus' name, it just, it's a compound effect. It multiplies to the umpteenth power, to the umpteenth power. It just keeps going. They can't give all their money away, and we can't lose all of our glory for faithfulness to the Lord. <laughs> their money doesn't transcend dimensions, but our faithfulness to the Lord does. That's the big difference. The last thing we see is the team. David built a great team. Verse 10. So we have shepherd, the heart of a shepherd, the action, getting after it, taking the initiative, doing what's difficult, getting it done, make it happen, taking the city. And then David and his mighty men. It says that they were, these were the heads of the mighty men. So there's, David had a lot of mighty men. He had hundreds of men that rallied around him before he ever became king of Hebron and Judah, let alone all Israel and that he strengthened them, they strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom. Talking about this Tuesday night, obviously as we draw near to the Lord, we strengthen ourselves in the Lord. Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I'll draw them into myself. And we find strength, and we find comfort, and we find hope in our time with the Lord. Scott prayed earlier about slowing things down and just being with the Lord. Jesus called men to himself and women, and they got away, and they were with the Lord, and they got clarity, and they got peace, and... They got great commissioned. David's mighty men are interesting how they're organized. There's four groups of three, and they're layered before you get to the rest of them. When you go through this chapter up to Beniah through verse 22 up to 25, you'll see that there are in increments of three. There's the first three, the next three, the three that went to Bethlehem and got the water from the well, another three with uh, Joab's brother in that three, and then Benaniah in the fourth group of three. So literally, David had 12 that were distinct from the rest. Isn't that interesting? David had four groups of three that were these chief among the mighty men, and then he had the rest of the mighty men. And of those mighty men, he even had a Moabite, he had uh, an Ammonite, he had someone from the tribe of Reuben. Man, they just came to him. And we've seen in Samuel that there at the cave of Abdullam, that the men that came to David were in debt, in distress, and discontent. In debt, okay, that's hard to start a business when everyone's in debt. It's hard to get any economy going where it was in debt. But they were in debt. They're in distress. They were, they, were, they were drama people. They were men with drama. But perhaps the most profound one is their discontent. That's that as a summary of these men, it's like, man, that's this is a this is brilliance in leadership. Because David took men who always complained. And when you complain and you have excuses, you're the victim. That's what it is. When you make excuses and you complain, you're the victim. Oh, it's this thing's fault. I'm a, I'm a, it's fate. It's the universe worked against me this day. When you make excuses and you complain, you make yourself the victim. You're the victim of something that happened to you out of your control. But when we and I, you and I accept responsibility, then we're free. When we own everything, we're free. And that's what David did. We talked about David Tuesday night. When he was confronted for every sin, he said, you are right. And he owned it every time. When Abigail's like, when you're a king and all this, this will be nothing to. And he's like, thank you. He received her, it says. He, re, he respected her spirit, her person, it says, with Abigail. David, all, see, David didn't make excuses. David owned everything, he accepted responsibility. And it's only natural that men would draw near to him and they're discontent and they're, they're complaining about everything. He's like, would you just stop it? Here in the cave of Abdullah, we're not about victims. We're about victors. We're not about being victims of what people do to us, like throwing spears at us in the palace. We're about victors, about being anointed by King Samuel and fulfilling our purpose in life. So if you want to stay in this cave with me, faith thinks and acts. I'm going to show you how a woman of God carries herself in the good day and the difficult day. And I'm going to show you what faith looks like. I'm going to show you what a heart for God looks like when you hang out with me in this cave. And I may have to tell some of you, stop talking like that. But some of you, I won't need to tell you that because you'll catch on quick. That doesn't go with me. This is amazing leadership of David. He built a team around his faith in the Lord, being, being, being led by the chief shepherd and being a shepherd. He, His life and witness in his very disposition and how he saw things, it so influenced and impacted these men that from these men that had nothing, they became great men. Like I said on Tuesday night, reading the list of these men, they're not just names of people who happen to be part of a tribe, like previous parts of Chronicles, chapters 1 through 9. These men are here for a reason. They're not just here because they're a Reubenite or a Gadite or a Manassanite. They're, They're here because they're mighty men. Because they're men that were a train wreck, and they ride around this king before his kingdom came, sounds like the church. It's here, but it's coming. And they let this king's life and witness influence them for good. And he elevated all of them. Because it says they strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom. And we come together as the body of Christ, and we're singing songs, and we're praying, and we're fellowshipping like the men this morning. We are strengthening ourselves with the king in his kingdom. That's what we're doing. As iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another countenance. As a woman sharpens another woman, and they sharpen each other's countenance. When the women get together, and they pray together, and they gather together, and it's the word, it's the fellowship, and all these beautiful things are happening. That's what we do. We, we, we speak life in the cave of Abdullah, and we make sure we remind ourselves that we're victors in Christ because the victory's already won. We're not victims, and we, we change our mindset we cast off those filthy rags of being an Adam, and we put on the glorious robes of righteousness promised to us in eternity, and we walk in it now. See, when, you, when we live like we're in eternity right now, we're, we're becoming who we're supposed to be. See, in the business world, though, I say, don't dress for your job, dress for the job you want. Like, that's one of the most basic principles of business. Like, don't dress for the job you have, dress for the job you want. Don't act like the person who's assistant manager. You want to be the boss of everything, then carry yourself like that person. Well, how much more so the body of Christ? We, we need to carry and conduct ourselves in the victory that's established. Or as Dr. David Livingston, the famous missionary, said, I'll go anywhere as long as it's forward. The man who changed Africa for Jesus, one of the 100 most respected men of influence, human beings of influence in the history of Great Britain, in the top 100. And the man that fought slavery in Tanzania, when most of us can't even find it on a map, was not being identified. He went to Africa endured so much and he changed the world and he fought to free the slaves and he changed the world. And we happen to support a missionary in Tanzania who is in the same town where the David Livingston Museum is, a little teeny museum that highlights with photos of the things that he did to elevate the people of that culture in Jesus' name. That's who we are. That's what we do. So we go forward. We build our team. We make things happen. We have faith. We have inspiration. We have unity. We have focus. We have values. We have purpose. And we go forward in Jesus' name. I was studying John Johnson recently. He's the famous black man that started Ebony Magazine. He came from extreme poverty in Arkansas. The mom moved to Chicago where he was mocked and ridiculed for being a country bumpkin, even amongst the middle-class blacks of Chicago, And from that culture, he rose to great prominence in faith with God, philanthropy beyond measure, and was a huge leader in the civil rights movement. And one thing he never did, he never allowed anyone, based upon any reason, to accept excuses for where they came from. But he only told them they had to go forward with where they were going and the things that God had for them. And that's us. That's the team we are in Jesus' name here at Worship Generation. That's the team the church is in Jesus' name, whether the church accepts it or not. It's not who we were or what we were when we came. It's who we're going to be when we go forward with Jesus. We need to study people like that and realize that that's how we're meant to live. Always forward. So body of Christ, WGB encouraged. just is kingdom leadership in its beauty, in its highest level, in its highest ideas with David, the shepherd's heart, the action to even deal with difficult things. When they say no, you're like, no, it's yes, and it's the lead follower. Get out of the way because it's got to be done, and we're going to get it done. We're going to find a way. And then building that team, leading that team through humility with the shepherd's heart, with di- dealing with difficult things but really inspiring people to stand in victory, to sharpen one another, and to build up the people around us and just keep it going forward with faith and optimism in the promises of God. (laughs) I'll close with this thought. Zig Ziglar rightly says that being positive doesn't accomplish anything, but it's a sure lot better than being negative. (laughs) Isn't that the truth? (laughs) We of all people through faith in Jesus Christ should be the most positive people on planet Earth because with our our promise with the promises of God behind us and the glory in front of us, man. Let's be leaders. Let's be led. Let's be leaders.